0: Hello, listeners. Thanks for tuning in today into the latest episode of the FinTech Investor Podcast Series. This is Simon Yu, and today our guest is Dr. Ted Benson of Instabase. Ted, welcome to the show. Do you mind telling the audience a little bit about yourself?
1: Yeah, I'm a, I'm a kid from, I guess, a blend of the country and the, the suburbs who always thought I was going to be a professor. Worked in R&D for a while um, just to have the experience of working because I knew I was going to go back to grad school. Went to grad school and I, I guess I had the problem of I just couldn't stop building things. And so I went the entrepreneurial route uh, instead of the, the teaching route. And I've, I've been here ever since. So where did you grow up? Uh, Virginia, in the kind of a combination of Richmond and Appalachia.
0: Okay. So from there, you went to the University of Virginia, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. Rumor has it, you never studied. Is that true?
1: Oh, I, I, I don't remember. <laughs> I
0: suppose I, I must have. You have to do work. In all seriousness, though, you're obviously very gifted academically because you managed to get into MIT's CSAIL program, which uh, is not easy to get into. And of course, you studied under... One of the leaders in artificial intelligence, Dr. David Carger, can you talk a little bit about that experience?
1: At CSAIL is an amazing place. I, I mean, all I think the the great thing about all of the research labs of the world is that they they act as sort of an airport waiting lounge for. Interesting folks with interesting ideas who who literally just land, hop off a plane, come by, chat for a few days and leave. And I think more than anything else, the amazing energy around that place is that feeling of this is a a watering hole for people to come and and talk about ideas. Um, David is really interesting and unique. In addition to being just the kindest man alive, um, he collaborates across virtually every field of computer science, which I think made for a really interesting and, and, and special view into the research world. Um, he, his background is theory. Uh, he's done a lot of uh, randomized algorithms work. More recently, he's done a lot in the web community and the HCI community. Uh, and the, the joke is that he's, he tries to publish in at least one of you know every subfield conference per year. What did you write your dissertation on, by the way? Uh, It was a thesis about a a language I had created called CATS, Cascading Tree Sheets. For the the the
0: layperson, what does that mean?
1: Well, so it was just a name I I picked, but the the general observation was that, you know, it's 2018 now, physicists are teleporting matter across the street, and and yet it's still hard to make a web page. And part of the problem... That is absolutely remarkable it's a, it's a strange situation that we these asymmetries of of capability that we find ourselves in and i had been doing some natural language processing work and just kept gravitating back to this fundamental problem of why is it so darn hard to build a website and and started getting interested in this idea that perhaps we could reason about a web application in the same way that a database reasoned about data. I mean, at the end of the day, a web application is data located at different places, and it's moving back and forth, and transformations are happening on it. And yet, the way we build web apps is still so ad hoc. And and so the the thesis was essentially, it posed the question, what if we structured the way in which we constructed a web application a little bit more, what could we then do with it? And it turns out you can do a lot of interesting things. You can optimize the way data is flowing. I think at one point we showed you can get about a fourfold efficiency improvement in data centers. Uh, you can make it easier to create web apps for, for novices and, and for beginners. Uh, you can do better reasoning about caching and performance and mobile batteries. All sorts of interesting things happen once you get a more structured picture of the way in which a
0: web app is composed. Ted, you took your research, took it one step further, and then tried to commercialize it by creating a company around the IP.
1: Yeah, so this, I had been still pursuing this as a research project, and uh, at one point had been, you know, you need to sell research like anything else, and this was pretty dry research, and I needed a way to, um, for lack of a better word, sex it up, make it sellable, make it interesting so you could sell it to the the research community, and somebody suggested, literally in an elevator, you know, what if you connected spreadsheets and word docs to this thing and showed how people could... Connect their website to a spreadsheet. And it turned out that the tech stack supported that. And I literally, just as a demo, to make it visual so people could understand, I adapted it. And the demos, um, I'm not joking, it, to some communities, uh, caused sort of tears of joy when folks who were retraining to become programmers saw what they could do in just a few minutes, uh, but they thought it would take a long time. So I tur- turned it into a company, CloudStitch. Uh, That was a a three-year awesome ride. Um, We tried to create a platform that would allow anybody to, with very minimal front-end knowledge, uh, create a website, power it with your office suite, um, and it simplified the deployment story, it simplified the management story, and most importantly, it put non-technical or semi-technical users in control over their websites, so we went through iCombinator Combinator and ultimately uh, about six months ago, was it now, got bought by Instabase.
0: Now, uh, fast forwarding to where you are today, tell us about Instabase and your founder, who I believe was a colleague of yours at MIT.
1: Yeah, back at MIT. Instabase is an, an amazing company. So Anant Bardwaj was at MIT. He was in Sam Madden and David Carger's group. But so Anant was, started with the premise essentially of how do you unify the the problem of interacting with data? You know, organizations have various forms of data lakes and all of these disparate data sources, and there's no real unified way to interact with them all. And and there's different ways of describing the core question, but it was almost what if you were to create a GitHub for data so that it could be versions, so that it could be joined, so that anybody in an organization could just come to one place, they could check out the data they needed, they could make changes, they could check it back in, and you could analyze what had happened in the history. And um, this is a really powerful thing uh, in, in a variety of settings. Uh, at the time, the database group at MIT had been doing a lot of collaboration with various astrophysics laboratories and, and various science laboratories. And data set management is a huge, huge problem. In these spaces, in the finance world, it's a similar thing. Uh, so that, that was the origins of Instabase. And as it's evolved, it's really become a platform for just problem solving in general, where mounting your data into a shared space is one part of the puzzle. but uh, there's so many other parts of the puzzle to actually get business value from that uh, that have been since added. So building apps, publishing apps, sharing apps on top of that data uh, where you can collaborate on you know, discovering the, the insights in the data, automating what you've done. Um, we, we do a lot, but I, I think one way to characterize some of the, the real home run value uh, that we're seeing today is with
0: dark data processing. So we, we have. Dark a- data processing. Let's talk about what dark data is. That's, sure. That may be a term that many listening are not yet familiar with. So, dark data, you know, there's a
1: lot of talk of, of big data. Um, and obviously, you can get a lot of value out of enormous size data sets. But there are other stories to how you can think about your organization's data. And oftentimes, if you have just the right data, it doesn't have to be big, it could fit on a USB stick but you can't get at it. Um, So dark data generally refers to that data that's hard to get at in traditional terms. So PDFs, images, movies, sound files, natural language text, if you have a- PowerPoints. PowerPoints, um, a a repository of 30,000 legal documents that your firm has crafted over the past three decades. So we could process all of these if only we could get the information inside of them. And one of the specialties among some others that we've really developed is the ability to create apps which help firms process that sort of data. So ingest lots of PDFs, ingest lots of legal contracts and extract exactly what they need, the economic terms or the the entities inside of those PDFs and if you have the right data, it doesn't have to be big. You can, yeah. you can deal with very small amounts of data and get exactly the kinds of things you want, and then you can put those into a system, a workflow system or, or a risk modeling system or
0: uh, a data science notebook, and, and you can go to town with them. Right, and just to, just to summarize and encapsulate what Instabase does is the fact that ultimately it enables any enterprise to ingest data across its various stores of information right. and make sense of it and Sorry. do so without a lot of brain damage.
1: Hopefully no brain damage. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Which is extraordinary if you think about it today. And you know, the reality is most enterprises, most financial institutions have finally woken up to the fact that their competitors are non-traditional ones. The ones that they should live in fear of are not just, you know, the bank down the street. Or the, over the overseas bank trying to come into their marketplace here at home, but rather the non-traditional players. You know, the so-called Amazon effect. Right? It's right. I mean, it's, I'm no
1: fintech strategist, but it, I mean, it does seem that while incumbency gives you a very long runway, uh, it, it is true that um, a lot of times uh, the approach that incumbents take to technology to automation is largely more efficiently doing what they've already been doing when maybe a, a greater need is to think about ways they could completely do something differently as a combination of humans. Without questions.
0: So Instabase is obviously filling a very important need, which is, the first step is ultimately, how do you ingest the data that you have, and right. make sense of it? So can you give the audience a sense of uh, some of the products and tools that you have on offer to make that work? We essentially act as an
1: operating system that you install on top of your cloud. And so whether you're on-prem, whether you're Amazon, whether you're on- You're Azure, platform agnostic. We're ways. platform agnostic. And uh, you get a what looks like a desktop with all of your data mounted in and apps. And for each of these stages that you talk about, for document ingest, for extracting information, for refining that information, cleaning it up, uh, all the way down to making business decisions, uh, we have different suites of apps that address that. And these would align along the kinds of, uh, I, I suppose, hot tech topics that you would imagine. So we have suites for natural language processing, suites for image processing, uh, for extraction, for clustering, classification. And our, our general approach is to try to create a platform that's usable by the business user with reasonable defaults where you can learn to use it with roughly Excel uh, knowledge, uh, but then is expandable by programmers. Because in in reality, every financial firm, every uh, it doesn't matter what kind of firm you are, you know your business the best. And so while a set of reasonable defaults for any new technology is going to get you probably impressively far, uh, ultimately what you want to do is build in-house engineering talent to learn to customize with the particular insights you have about your particular business. And so that's the other side. Could you talk
0: a little bit about some of the use cases that that you've deployed and what kind of efficiency gains uh, your customers have already experienced?
1: Sure. So some of the, the big ones are simply document ingest. So there are a lot of uh, companies across many different industries.
0: That sounds remarkably simple, doesn't it? Right. Being it it's, it seems simple. To onboard documents. It turns, and out,
1: yeah, it, it turns out that uh, it is a big problem that, as consumers, when I go to apply for a loan, if I want to buy a car, if I want to buy a house, if I want to go to school, I essentially submit whatever it is that I want to the bank. Now, just imagine how big a burden that is operationally when you have millions of people all around the world every day submitting whatever documentation they have and take a snapshot of with their iPhone or with their their Android uh, sitting on the kitchen table. You know, It's maybe they spilled wine on it, maybe it's crumpled, maybe it's upside down. The, the data the that you see in the war. real life is, is tremendous. And so it's it's cause of a big pain to then go from these snapshots all the way down the pipeline to a business
0: decision. Because so just to interrupt, sorry, Ted, just to be clear for the audience, um, now that it's easier for you to submit documents in the context of like a mortgage, what happens on the back end once the bank actually receives that data, how they I actually see. process the data? Sure. Well, I think electronification helps a lot. It, each, you know, each step forward is still a step sure. forward. Um, Some would say, for example, the fax machine was a step the,
1: forward. The fax machine, yeah. We, we still deal with lots of... I see a lot of fax documents in the data sets. You would that think we, that people uh, would have migrated expect. past that by now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, when, when you get in a new document, typically the, the process that uh, institutions follow is you have one team which is transcribing these documents into digital form. You have another team of checkers, which is checking the work of the first team to make sure it was transcribed. And then depending on the domain, then different things are going to happen. If it's a loan, it needs to go to underwriting and risk analysis. If it's um an account opening then it has to go
0: to whoever's managing the account
1: setup so at that point it depends upon the particular business
0: so while it's easy to share documents it doesn't necessarily mean it's any easier to process them because there's a lot of manual intervention there's a lot of manual intervention
1: and even the truth is even with automation there's still a lot of manual labor because the computer's not always right and it's reasonable to expect that we'll probably never get to a place where the computer is always right. Always right. Yeah. And so uh, you even with these automated pipelines, you have to build in what they call exception queues. You know, an exceptional condition yeah. happens and it needs to get kicked out to a human. And, and hopefully you can accommodate those corrections or the choices that the humans are making in a way that still
0: works with the rest of the pipeline. Understood. Job. So let's talk, just go back to the real life example of applying for a loan. Sure. Talk about how Instabase makes the process for the financial institution that much more efficient the gains that have been generated by it in terms of time savings or cost savings sometimes you can take things from days to
1: minutes now again this is the case where everything succeeds Um, there's plenty of cases where you do need to kick things back to the human uh, but the win condition for this type of automation is is pretty amazing.
0: You're talking about orders of magnitude
1: in efficiency. Orders price. of magnitude in efficiency. It yeah. it does. One of the interesting observations, though, is it does sometimes require you to look at your pipeline in a different way. So computers and humans act differently, and a lot of times these are. Uh, processes that were designed assuming that humans were the ones doing things at every step and so everything from the way in which you intake documents to the way in which you assess risk uh, sometimes you can get even more performance if you reassess not just the technology you're applying to the process but actually how the process itself can be changed to better work with technology and so it's it's always a two-part play where one part is coming up with a technological solution that helps you do things that maybe you couldn't do automatically before, but then also reflecting back on the organizational aspect of things, how you're how you are sequencing the information, how you're thinking about risk. Let's just walk through what would happen maybe in a typical kind Please? of workflow that you would create. So a document would come in. The first question you have is, what is this document? Did you give me a passport? Did you give me a W-2? Did you give me a pay stub? And that's a decision that is innate to a human, but a computer needs to learn to make. So the first thing that would happen is the computer would classify it and say, aha, this picture somebody just uploaded is a particular kind of document, and it gets sent to a set of handlers for that kind of document that, that you've created using our tools. Um, the next thing that And traditionally,
0: that's done by a human.
1: Traditionally, this is done by a human. Traditionally, yeah. I think each step of this is would be a different team or, mm-hmm. or a different unit. The, the next step Which is, is why a loan application process typically is measured in days as that's opposed right. to minutes. Or days, or, or in high-value accounts, it can be weeks absolutely. or months. Uh, For it, a mortgage, the, absolutely. The more, money, the more money that's involved, the, the more exotic and, and long-tail the due diligence process becomes. Um, and, and we handle some of that as well. I, I can get to that maybe after describing sure? this, the common case workflow because it's very interesting. So the document comes in. First, you need to understand what it is. Next, you need to take it to text. Now, in some cases, OCR is the term for a piece of software that takes an image and tells you what text is in the image. So for some kinds of documents, something like a W2, with like a clean tax form, OCR is pretty well understood. You can get off the shelf components. For other kinds of images, like passports, social security cards, driver's licenses, it turns out the the fraud protection works. I mean, All of the things that those document creators have done to prevent you from photocopying those documents also make it hard for the computer to read them. So we have a whole layer that looks at an image through a bunch of different lenses, so to speak, and is able to torture the text out of it, even if it's a a hard-to-extract data type then once you have the text you're still not done because you you don't care about text you actually care about the fields i want to know what your name is i want to know what the the monthly earnings were what the tax word was so uh, after that you transform the natural language text into actual data fields and again this is something that typically a human would have to do they'd, they'd be re-entering it into something like an excel model that had been developed. You're still not done because you've got to run risk models now. Because I need to make sure that you weren't trying to defraud me. So I need to recalculate: well, is the FICA tax actually accurate? Is the Social Security tax right. accurate? And and you need to apply models. So this whole chain of, you know, here's a document, we have no idea what it is, all the way to we've done risk modeling and we have a rough understanding of how we're feeling about this particular document, are things that the computer can learn to do instead. Uh, and and the, the trick that we use with our apps is we try to construct them in a way that business users can author these kinds of pipelines by themselves. You don't need to buy you know a quote-unquote passport solution from some company. You can come up with a new document type. Maybe it's specific to your business and nobody right. else has ever seen it before, right. and you can develop that kind of you pipeline You give them yourself. a set
0: of dials that they can manipulate on their own. That's right.
1: In a lot of cases, perhaps human intervention is always appropriate. I mean, it's perfectly... Mm. If, if you automate everything up until the point at which a human steps in and says I authorize the final thumbs up, you've automated a whole lot. Where do you take
0: your customers next once they're able to ingest data in a much more efficient
1: way? The industry is at a
0: really exciting place right now with respect to machine learning. Uh, for years and now, years... Now machine learning has been so often used that it's almost lost all meaning. How do, you, how exactly. do you think about How do you think about machine learning today? You is one of the one of the true experts in the area.
1: Well, for for, for decades, uh, AI, machine learning have have really been something that require a research background to I think meaningfully, productively participate in. Yeah. And and you see, this is part of the reason why companies like Google have been able to achieve such a, a large lead on their peers. Yeah, uh, is is because they can hire straight out of all of the PhD programs of the right. world. We're right now seeing the rapid transition of the core capabilities of machine learning becoming engineering building blocks
0: instead yes. of R&D yes. tools. Yeah, to your point, in fact, all the major cloud providers offer yes. machine learning yes. as a service. So to the, the broader question
1: of what's the, a bigger picture beyond the immediate task, of for, for example, processing documents, equipping companies with a platform on top of which they can become capable themselves with some of these building blocks of machine learning, data processing, data understanding, data science, whatever you want to call the the rough collection of capabilities that we're still trying to figure out even what the right words are for. That's a very exciting place to be, one, because it's wide open in terms of platform development. Nobody's quite figured out yet what does the operating system for data productivity look like. Uh, two, because the lever arm that you're giving your customers is astonishingly large. If, if you can teach them to productively use these tools, they come back to you next week having done things already that you never have imagined that they would have been doing uh, until they got that capability. And so I think that from, from our standpoint in Silicon Valley, we have a strange lens with which to see the rest of the industry because we think a lot of times we know, oh, here's how this tech is going to be used. But when you put it into the hands of the rest of the world, the rest of the uh, community of thought, um, they end up creating all sorts of wild uses for it. Um, that's a very exciting moment, I think, for people who are building right. that
0: platform. But there's a huge social barrier that needs to be overcome, right? When you're talking about digital transformations, right. which is, I think, what we're talking about here, ultimately, how do you get the team to buy into that without them freaking out about? You know, that are long-term career prospects within the company.
1: Yeah, and we, we actually deal with this a lot. We're, we're a product vendor, um, but we, we often get involved in conversations about the broader strategy of how do you successfully adopt some of these automation tools across the company. And I think this is true regardless of the particular tools you're using. Um, you really need to create an atmosphere where people see the new tech that they're adopting, machine learning, things like this, as a, a collaborator of theirs, rather than something that's going to displace. The, the great fear is, oh, you know what if what if we don't need this part of the team anymore? What if we have to retrain some part of the team? And, and terms like that get thrown around a lot. But one way to look at it is if all you're doing is replacing part of the team, then with respect to your competitors, especially small, scrappy startups, you're just standing skill. You're essentially reaping better efficiencies, but actually not changing what the core fundamentals of what you're doing. So I think the really successful way, both for the bottom line of business yeah. long-term, but then also the culture, is find a way to weave it throughout your team as a better pickaxe yeah. so that everybody right. sees this as something that's that's helping them do their own jobs better, not something that's just
0: replacing. So you're, you're finding ways in which people can reinvent themselves and increase their productivity and therefore their value to the organization? Yes. Okay, but in reality, how readily are people willing to embrace that uh, that ideology, that uh, that marketing pitch that you guys make and what kind of questions have you faced Right. What's, response, what's yeah. just
1: easy to say and what's what's easy to do? Well, I think, I mean, an interesting exercise is to ask anybody in your organization, what took most of your time last week and how would you make that better? And I'm willing to bet that most people have an interesting answer to that question. It, it doesn't mean that the answer to that question should dictate your automation strategy, but I think that everybody is on board with the idea that they can make certain elements of their job better. And so I think the trick is, how do you take that fundamental, universal observation that people have. I could I could have a better time of this. I could do a better job of this and join that to whatever the automation strategy is. And sometimes there'll be big changes. Sometimes something can be done automatically, which was cause of, of great human labor. And, and if that can be automated, then you have this big shifting of what the folks involved are doing. But I think that that, that fundamental observation of, You know, we're upgrading your tiny Swiss Army knife to a mega-sized Iron Man suit is something that you can work with culturally. And then once you've got the cultural buy-in, then you can start to have creative conversations with each department where it's not structured around this idea that there's this external machine that's coming in, and instead it's structured around the idea that we're trying to find new
0: ways to create better products. Yeah, I love the analogy, the Iron Man suit. Who doesn't want an Iron Man suit? I I want an Iron Man suit. I want one too talk a little bit about where you think state-of-the-art is with regards to AI and machine learning. You know, it seems like um, on the one hand, you have the Elon Musks of the world who think there's a 100% chance we're living in a computer simulation. And on the other hand, you know, the, the reality is um, we have a long way to go before even autonomous vehicles are really commercially viable. So talk about your thoughts on this. I mean, you're obviously an expert.
1: For me, the, the interesting observation, I suppose, is the difficulty of the final 10%. I think that one crude way to describe a lot of machine learning up until this point is that we essentially have this symphony of idiot savants, where every AI model is extremely capable of something so small and, and hyper-focused I see. that while it can outperform a human at the task... So state-of-the-art the today is that we have a bunch of raiment synthetically created... More or less. And I think that's changing. I think it's changing in a couple of ways. As machine learning becomes more an engineering tool and less a science tool, I think we're developing the large-scale systems to, as humans, integrate a lot of these uh, hyper-specific models into Mm. a more useful, broader, general Mm. system. But then aside from the whole engineering conversation, I think some of the deep learning techniques are, are getting us closer to... This sort of fantasy of what if we just had a general purpose unit of learning.
0: And what about AlphaGo and the advances made by Google in the game of Go itself? Go is a phenomenally challenging environment,
1: but it's still an environment in which the objective function, in which the rules of the game, in which the inputs are extremely well defined. Right. So I think the big thing to watch for is the moment at which we start seeing that kind of competence where the objectives, where the inputs are are ill-defined, that that's when things really start to get interesting. And, and driverless cars, I think, are an example of we're a little bit ahead of ourselves in the sense that we're patching up for the lack of this general intelligence with exquisite engineering. So a driverless car is really a lot of very, very cleverly designed models that an enge- like really good engineering is then unifying into a decision-making system.
0: Right. I take solace and a bit of hope from what you just said there, because it sounds like uh, at the end of the day, what you're saying is expertise will not soon be replaced.
1: Not not soon. I, I don't think the robots are coming yet. So you mentioned Musk before. You know, There's a whole separate clan, I suppose, inside Silicon Valley, which is tremendously worried about just the long-term goal of what happens if we create a superintelligence. And I, I think that that's right. those issues are much farther off than the real world lives right. of people today. And would you say much further off, are we talking decades? Oh, nobody knows. I, I mean, I could give a guess, but nobody knows.
0: Are you seeing enterprises become smarter in how they share their data and ultimately who owns the data with their vendor relationships as a consequence of where we're headed?
1: It'll be interesting to see how GDPR unfolds because I feel like this will be, at least to my knowledge, the first very large You should explain scale. what that is. Oh, me. excuse me. So GDPR is uh, it's essentially a set of regulations that are unfolding as we speak over the next few months in Europe that concern uh, the rights, uh, for lack of a better word, the rights of individuals over the information the companies hold on them. So, I, and I'm to, a, to a rough degree of approximation, I think a, a company will now have to be answer the question, what data do you have about me? And I think it'll be interesting to see how this unfolds. Uh, from the consumer perspective, there's a lot that makes sense about that. From the business, from the society perspective, there's a lot that makes sense about that. I I empathize with the the pain from the tech perspective because this creates a whole set of challenges just for implementation.
0: Before we wrap up, can you talk about some of the lessons you've learned as an entrepreneur?
1: Yeah, sure. Gosh, there's so many observations you learn along the way. Uh, I I think the big one for me, and this uh, is the thing that I want to go and shout across every college campus, is uh, how different valuing ideas is in the free market versus in uh, a college in an academic setting. I think to, to a, some degree of approximation, academics, especially if you've gone through grad school, are trained to essentially argue their way into validation of an idea. Something is true because they've observed, you know, step A, step B, step C, therefore this is true. In the, in the free market, Intellectually, that remains the case. Right. But really, it's all about can you get enough hearts who love yeah. your product or can you get enough wallets who want to buy your product? Yeah. And, and if you can't do either of those, and, and essentially that that can be unmoored from the, the logical argument that something is a good idea. And so I think for me, especially coming from the R&D background, the biggest lesson was learning to speak different languages of how to value an idea. It's not easy, and, and it's very different. And I, I think that especially, because I, I would love nothing more than to see you know a million startups launched out of every research lab in the country. I think that especially researchers have this intense desire to see what they're doing have an effect in the world. And and there's, among a subset of the communities, there's frustration that they'll publish a paper, and then the worry is, what, yeah. if, what if nobody ever reads it? Right. How can I build this and get this out into the world? And I think that that translation of okay the the research validation to the market validation is such an
0: important uh, topic that yeah. I, I, I wish more people talked. Ted it's been a real pleasure having you on the show. Thanks Thank you. very much for making the time. Absolutely. Thanks we'll, so much. We'll, ta- we'll talk again soon.